Fantasy Animation is a completely free online educational resource that provides weekly blogs and bi-weekly podcasts dedicated to the discussion of fantasy cinema and the medium of animation. It's staffed by academics and animators, all of whom work together to try to give you the most up-to-date and authoritative analysis of uh, the relationship between fantasy cinema and the medium of animation. You can support our endeavours by accessing our online archive of blogs and podcasts and leaving a quick review for this podcast in whatever platform that's appropriate. Also pass it along to your friends, they'd love to hear it, I promise. This episode was recorded back in February, um, was in a special exclusive edition for the Anifest uh, coordination we did where we ran a day of, of blogs and, and podcasts for um, the Canterbury Anifest Festival. We're interviewing the festival director there as well as um, academic in his own right, uh, Chris Pallant, um, where he talks about his work with small films in particular, the acclaimed TV series Bagpuss. So you'll hear references to the Anifest crowd. Um, as you said, uh, this was an exclusive for them, but now we're delighted to share it with the rest of you, uh, and we hope you enjoy the show. upon a time, not so long ago. Welcome everyone uh, and the special Anifest crowd to this exclusive whimsical episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, a saggy old cloth cat, Chris Holiday. Um, I guess that makes me a, a wooden woodpecker, which I'm not necessarily happy with, but I'm Alex Sargent. Sure. So this week we're returning to the work of the celebrated Kent-based small film studio, uh, linking back to our episode uh, ooh, a couple of years ago now um, on Pogles Wood, uh, with this one, which tackles Bagpuss, Peter Furman and Oliver Postgate's 13-episode stop-motion series from the 1970s. Now, for me, of course, there's lots to say about craft, about the handmade, but also, I think, imagination uh, and storytelling. Alex, is this tale of a stop-motion moggy whose seemingly erratic sleep patterns have the ability to turn inanimate objects into walking, talking characters at all fantastical. <laughs> I like this new thing you're doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, and I think very folky. I've got a lot to say about songs and communities and and passing stories between one another and the joy of storytelling as a, as a collective rather than as a singular. Because um, I think, uh, oddly, Bagpuss is completely about that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Yes, and joining us uh, for this special episode is Dr. Chris Pallant, who is a reader in film studies at Canterbury Christchurch University, a festival director, of course, of the Canterbury Anifest, uh, and also president of the Society for Animation Studies. Now, Chris is the author of a number of books, articles, uh, and chapters across film and media studies. So this includes his monograph, Demystifying Disney, and also the edited collection Storyboarding, A Critical History from 2015, uh, and then also Animated Landscapes, History, Form and Function the same year. His most recent anthology is on the history, production and cultural legacy of Disney's Snow White with, uh, and I've just put here, a wonderful co-editor. Just put that there. Um, who can that be? He's also published further work on Disney, the cartoonism of Quentin Tarantino's live-action films, uh, performance, capture technology and video games. But we've got him on specially today because of his new project related to, to small films. More of that later. So, Chris, uh, really big thanks to you for, for joining us today on this on this special episode. Thanks for having us, guys. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Welcome to the Anifest crowd as well. It's it's great to be able to um, you know do something this year and, and, and reach out to the Anifest crowd and to tackle a subject that's really close to home. So, um, you know, thank you for that really generous introduction. Um, and yeah, I'm really you know excited to to get. To, 
some cracking about Bagpost today. It's interesting as well to hear the introduction you just made. You, know, you t- touched on the word whimsical. Um, Alex t- touched on the word community. It's almost as if you've got a direct webcam somewhere watching me you know, write the book that I'm working on at the moment. You're, you're <laughs> picking up key words. Well done. <laughs> well, you said actually close to home, and, and I think given what I know about you and actually where I'm and you are recording this podcast, I think close to home takes on a perhaps a slightly different edge. But we wanted to get you on, as I said, um, in relation to your current research into small films. So before we get into into Bagpuss and we've sort of um, asked you to give us a, a cross section of episodes and we'll go through and, and, and rank them and, and talk about what Bagpuss is, is doing and perhaps its relationship to the studio more broadly. Uh, we were hoping and, and wondering if you could kind of plot a little bit of your journey into the studio. How did you arrive at looking at this small but influential animation uh, studio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the story starts in, well, when I was a child watching uh, Clangers reruns when I was a little kid sitting down with my mum. Clangers was always probably my favourite growing up. Um, but in recent years, I think I've, I've moved over to Bagpuss as the kind of the, the primary text when it comes to small films. So that was the, that's the kind of the old version of the story. But then 2014, 15, um, made some connections with Peter Furman and, and Dan Postgate brought them down to speak to Annie Fest um, that year and, um, you know, really, really got on well with them and just had this this eureka moment that um, I don't need to actually travel to Los Angeles to do research about screen media. I can actually do it and, and stay at home. And, you know, with a small family growing up around me, that really appealed. And then the more I dug into it, the more I realised that actually there was still plenty of stories to tell um, because this, the version we all know of uh, small films is history is very much the post-Gatian version of that. It comes from his autobiography, seeing things. Um, you know, he was very, he was an artful storyteller and was in control of that, that story. And um, Peter Furman, very unassuming, didn't really kind of want to put himself in the spotlight. So it's kind of naturally over time, you get this quite, you know, one dimensional account of, of the history, which is, you know, for the most part, is 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 pretty solid and 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 lines up with the uh, the kind of factual record. But there are gaps because of that. And the more I dug into it, the more I realised that that there was work to be done. Um, so I applied for a Leverhulme, got a Leverhulme back in twenty end of twenty seventeen. So this project, this is the third year of the project. I should be finishing this year, but um, they very graciously gave me an extra year and a half because I took shared parental leave, yeah. and also COVID nineteen has happened. So that's really slowed things down. But we're nearly there. I was just saying to Alex that I've got about 90,000 words of the book written. And um, you know, if, if there wasn't currently a pandemic and I wasn't homeschooling, then I'd, the, the book would be finishing itself this you know, this month, mm. next month. Uh, mm. But it'll be ready for summer and it'll be out soon. Uh, it's called Beyond Bagpuss. It's coming out with the BFI. Uh, so I look forward to that soon. Well, I was just going to ask sort of as someone coming to small films as a relative outsider, I know of a lot of these fil- um, these shows, but I, I don't think I've seen many of them. Um what what is the standard narrative of of small films? How are they sort of seen or 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 consumed sort of popular on a popular level? And then what is you what is your project trying to kind of add to or complicate with that narrative? Yeah, I think primarily they they're, they're seen as kind of quintessentially British. There's that kind of angle which um, I, I am interested in to a certain degree in the book, but also it's not really my bag to kind of un- unravel that it just feels like um such a knotty issue to get into and, and i see so much stuff within um the work of small films you know across all the projects that's actually more universal than that um there's also the sense that um you've kind of got the genius artists as well you know postgate is certainly 
um, you know, held up in, in, in high esteem, um, quite rightly. Um, and, and Fermin is also kind of attached to that, but you know, not quite as, as uh, associated. I did an interesting study of the press coverage of, of small films in the um, wake of both of their deaths in terms of the obituaries. And the word frequency for Postgate's surname compared to Fermin's, you kind of doubles, you know, double the word count for Postgate compared to Fermin. So that was telling me something, although it's quite blunt. Um, so yeah, I think craft, as Chris mentioned, um, absolutely folkness as well. You know, the sense that it's connected to um, the pastoral in, on many many occasions within the works. You know, as you've already covered in the uh, the Pogles episode, you did um, you know, tapping into kind of the folkloric. Um, so yeah, there's 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 plenty plenty of, of threads that, that weave through. For me, one of the big things is is the um, kind of collaborative nature of the works, the community element which you see on screen, but is also there, you know, within the production context. And and that's really one of the that's the big driver for me in terms of the book that I've been writing, is to excavate that story and to kind of put it on the page and, and fill in the gaps where many of the collaborators that we perhaps know about in passing, we don't really appreciate how deeply involved they were in the production. Well, actually, on the note of, of, of production, I know that you're interested in archiving and thinking about the, the pre-production materials, uh, as indicated by your um, your stuff on, on storyboarding. And so I wondered, actually, uh, given that you work in, and I live quite close to, to where the studio was, it, where's your first port of call in that sense? Where do you where is the material being held? You said you didn't need to go to, to Los Angeles, but is there material with which you can can work with? Um, because I don't really know much about yeah your, either your journey into it, but also where you're conducting this research. Where is the stuff, and is there much stuff? Have you found um, stuff to work with as part of this project? Well, whoever's listening to this, you know, I might have to hunt you down and, and, and silence you if I tell you the, the actual locations of these, oh. these secret documents. I, I will say that um, you know, quite close to me right now is the entire Postgate archive. You know, literally right. quite quite close to me. <laughs> yep, yep, um, yep. Which is so that's that's been very helpful. You know, during during the pandemic era. Um, you know, the local to Canterbury. I'm not going to go into the details because these yeah. places are quite easy to find. Um, but certainly local to Canterbury. You know, there is another sizable and um, private family archive that I've been able to you know work from. But beyond that, it's been going to the BBC over Reading Way. You know, the written archives there, um, which has got a huge amount of of small films related material, and that's been you know spent um, probably six full days in total over there doing over the course of a couple of years and i need to get back there when they reopen and um, bumped into into van van norris as well while i was over there and it was just kind of fluke that he was there doing some some research as well on um british television satirical comedies i think from the 70s so that was nice but yeah archives spread around bfi bbc and um the privately held family archives that's been the uh, the bread and butter of it and there's lots of material within those well, it's good to give a shout out to my colleague Van Norris. So that's uh, that's all. That, that's my, my job with my University of Portsmouth hat on. Um, but uh, okay, so so let's talk about Bagpuss then, because um, if I, I haven't seen many of these shows, I'm aware of the Clangers, but I think Bagpuss has somehow, whether on purpose or by accident, become the kind of talismanic, iconic character of the Postgate brand. You know, if you were doing a sort of um, uh, if we're doing a small films land, I think uh, Bagpuss would be, you know, greeting guests at the front gate in that kind of uh, horror. I've just imagined a nightmare scenario where that actually happens. So please don't do that. It's but, a um... lovely vision. I can see the mouth, <laughs> yeah. this gaping mouth, and walk into Bagpuss. 
Beautiful. So, so t- tell us what, why, why Bagpuss? Why did you want to do Bagpuss? What is it about the show? And is there anything about sort of how the show has been sort of nostalgically or romantically received that sort of has allowed this particular one to establish itself as almost a sort of example of all the other small films works? Yeah, good question. Um, I guess get the uh, the ref klaxon ready for the for the mix afterwards. You know, in terms of the um, the book's title, Beyond Bagpuss, in terms of everything you kind of commented about, that's what I was continually confronted with. This sense that people know about Bagpuss. I did the um, the audience survey. I've got almost twelve hundred responses to the audience survey that I put out, and Bagpuss is the the show that most people know about. It's their most popular show. Um, Bagpuss is topped countless popular television surveys as kind of the most popular animated character um you know in terms of you know episodes as well you know it's kind of up there when they do episodic rankings of animation um so there's clearly something there when i went over to to reading to do a day in the archive i was driving home went to the motorway i was stuck in the traffic crawling along the m25 look out of the window next to me there's a car with a bagpuss nodding head Thing on the dashboard and it just was one of those moments where I thought you know I am onto something here this is a path to follow um, so why though why why has it been so durable um, it was repeated for about 13 years and reruns um, across BBC and Channel 4 so there was a real sense that it was it was kind of prevalent in your eyes when you're a kid growing up for a number of generations um, I think in terms of the kind of the elements that it brings together you know we, we look across all the different small things shows it is towards the high point going into the end of their kind of production story. Um, so they were they were skilled. You know they knew what they were doing. They were confident. Um, the BBC were very much leaning into them to kind of produce work. So there's that sense of just going for it and, and not really you know holding back with Bagpuss. Um, I think what you said at the start, Alex, as well, which was maybe we pre pre record, um, was to do with the kind of segmented, kind of modular, almost modular nature of Bagpuss. Again, that sense that you, you you sit down, you watch an episode, and you get a bit of everything. You get a bit of stop motion, a bit of hand drawn. You get some songs. Um, it's funny. You know, it's, it's just it's absolutely loaded. It's kind of layered, as as I talk about in the book, in terms of. Um, you know what it brings to the table the word I actually used in the chapter is bricolage but I don't want to get into that too much I think we can just stick with with layered for now because mm-hmm. uh, I was interested in the ways in which because I also wasn't too familiar with the with the program and I'd and I'd heard of a couple of the other ones so was this and I and I'm I mean it seems like the studio small films um this kind of quite cottage industry based out of this old old space um uh, dealt with a lot of different types of animation and so actually i was wondering whether or not bagpuss is sort of uh, does it contain the sort of signature small films elements that we would come to know of or actually um does it i don't know try and develop you said it comes at a high point but looking through the, the show i was i was struck by the different uses of animation and the different you know the framing story is often well it has kind of real photographs but it's, it's stop motion then you have other different forms of animation and i and i hadn't really realized that and it seems a lot more nuanced than i perhaps gave it gave it credit for but it's something like because this is bankrupt comes after after the clangers and so they were and pogles would but before that were they were they still in stop motion or is this something that they came to relatively late on in their life cycle no, this kind of returns to the point I was making about confidence that, um, you know, they'd had a, a, a fair bit of time to get used to working with stop motion. So you've got Pogles Wood. I mean, they, they, they transition with Penguins. Penguins is the first one where they go to stop motion. Then they move into Pogles Wood. Uh, then you've got Clangers. And then you've got the Forgotten show that they worked on. Um, 
put you on the spot. What's the forgotten show that comes in between Clangers and Bagpuss, the absolute high point of, of small films, fame, notoriety, and, and confidence in production? Um, I'm so glad I'm the fantasy person on this show. It's not on Wikipedia. You won't find it on Wikipedia. Um... <laughs> It's okay. This is good. This this is this is this is you know showing that the underpinning research that kind of informs this talk is is valuable. The um they worked on Sam on Boss Island, so that's not strictly strictly speaking not a small films production. It's a BBC educational show, but they did all of the stop motion work for that show, and I've done a screen time count, a data kind of survey across all the shows, and Sam on Boss Island has more animated screen time than several other small film shows so it kind of deserves recognition so yeah they'd absolutely had a lot of time to kind of practice themselves with stop motion before they got to bagpuss and um i think one of the things that i love about it is that the kind of the yaffle you know when you look at that yaffle what what do you see you know they're wearing their heart on their sleeve you see the meccano you know on screen which up until that point had been inside you know the armatures of, of clangers and and penguins and stuff like that yeah, I. It's funny you mentioned about the the, the sort of the fit, the official and the the unofficial. What gets included and folded into the history and what left. And I feel like this happens with a lot of animation studios actually, whether it's um, uh, Ghibli or whether it's Pixar or it's the sort of the things that you count as part of the narrative or the or, or the the industrial narrative, uh, and then also the films or the shorts that weren't quite the bit before the studio started properly. So that's it. I hadn't I hadn't noticed that. And you're right, it doesn't. I did a little check and it does not appear on. On Wikipedia, it gives you a nice little timeline um, of the different things, and there's a, a sort of greatest hits. Surely that that to go from Pogleswood to the Clangers to Bagpuss is, you know, I, I mean, only bettered surely by the Fast and the Furious franchise in terms of just in increasing value. Um, I wanted to get that in because I just thought their, their their track record of certain kinds of things is is, and I wasn't too familiar with with lots of them, but um, seen odd episodes of of either the engine nog and the nog but um yeah i i got my, got my teeth into bagpus which i guess is something we yeah so what we've asked to do, do chris is to is to provide us with with five episodes that you think sort of encapsulates the show um and you're going to rank them for us live so we don't know what your rankings are but we're excited to find out so why don't you kick things off by telling us the the sort of the least favorite we'll phrase it like that of of the five what's the what's the starter one uh, and give us a quick sort of plot synopsis and tell us why you've picked uh that one yeah i think i've been a little bit um I've, I've been a bit um i've used the ranking as well to help us in terms of have a conversation about bagpost too so i've gone for ship in a bottle as number five now i would probably put that a little bit higher but i think it's really helpful okay. for us to talk about it first um such a pro such a pro yeah well gotta tell a story it's all about storytelling um so You've probably seen the episode. You know, many people listening have probably seen the episode. It's quite a famous one. Um, the first episode of the series. You know that you know the the kind of framing devices of Bagpuss. They're in the shop. They they come awake, and something's been brought. Emily's brought something. She's found something that's broken. And over the course of the episode, they need to figure out um, what this thing is. And usually there's a few wrong turns uh, and they use different types of methods to figure it out, either through song or they'll actually say to Bagpuss, right, use your magical thoughts and, and take us to a place. Um, and eventually they figure out that it's uh, it's a broken ship in a bottle. Uh, and then you have an episode which kind of shows how they then try to reconstruct this, this ship in a bottle. Uh, and there's this lovely uh, kind of child mouse endangerment is to try to shove the mouse head first into the bottle to get him and madeline's on the the top of the shelf oh stop stop i don't think you should do that and you know 
my heart's in my mouth every time I see poor Charlie Mouse being shoved in. And um, eventually they raise the sails and it's it's, it's fixed. And um, I think it's, it's a lovely it's a lovely episode um, because it, it pulls together so many of those threads. I think it's a nice one for us to start with um, in terms of. Um, I mean, for fantasy as well. I mean, that's that's why I put it first. You know, I thought it's a nice one to think of the different layers of, of fantastical mm. storytelling. That it are it seems like every episode, oh, well, it does. Every episode has, as you say, this sort of framing, um, framing uh, set of devices. Once upon a time, not so long ago, these sort of sepia photographs evoking childhood, childhood memories, um, and. Then we have a brief introduction as to all of the characters. And I think the first sort of between two minutes, 45, three minutes are always the same of every episode. Um, introducing the, the different kinds of characters in a sort of, um, yeah, it's the, it's, you know, it's the narrative that Toy Story wishes it was in terms of the inanimate object sort of thing. And, and there's a long history and animation of the toy, the toy shop coming to life and, and so forth. Um, and it seems like the the program every episode shifts to color when Bagpuss wakes up um that cues that m the moment of communal activity um and so actually you can do a nice little you know this episode deals with the this rag and this episode deals with and so i i really liked the the standardness of it on the seriality of it but um i think you're right in terms of it's the first ep uh, episode of the of the program um and i have a few things about character movement and sea shanties which are obviously very in vogue at the moment sea shanties um I've intentionally deleted TikTok from my phone and I, I take great pleasure in seeing the world going crazy about sea shanties and, and knowing it's TikTok, but not knowing at all what's going on. It's very good. Yeah. yeah. It's, so I, I, I wrote down sea shanties about mice and ducks sailing a ship. But anyway, we'll come on to that. Um, and obviously lots of stuff about uh, storytelling. I think for me, um, knowing of the very small stuff that's written on, on small films and we're talking paragraphs in broader sort of histories of, of animation or interrogations of particular kinds of animated aesthetics it seems like this episode fits perfectly in terms of you know it stands in for, for small films in terms of their relationship to industrialization and mass production and a broader ethos of trying to reuse rather than buy stuff in we're not going to throw this away we'll put it back together and and so i really liked that it did seem i mean I, i'm assuming that that this is uh, not, not necessarily an obvious reading, but a sort of this is really what the program's about. In this episode, it's really setting up exactly the relationship mm -hmm. that the, ha the characters have to each other, but also the relationship that the characters have to the things that, that are brought in, which are going to be repurposed and reused and sort of given back to the world. And so much of that is, is you know, is different fantasies of different objects, right? The, I mean, uh, the, the narrative of let's put the ship in the bottle is a nice microcosm for the imaginative interest in different objects doing different things because we've got this kind of kind of triad mythology right of of that's set up kind of each week which is that that emily brings bagpuss to life so there's a certain you know the the, the, the fantasy of animating a, a, a cat uh, and then you know now, now's the time for my obligatory wizard of oz reference of the week and that you know we get that sort of change from the, the still black and white photograph to the to the color as motion comes in and then we've got bagpuss as an enabler of other images right bagpuss breathes life into the um into the the sort of the, or, or brings to life the 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 um the the hand drawn well are they they're, they're not they're animations in some episodes and in other episodes they're more sort of stills um but so we've got a sort of dual layer going on so I was fascinated by the sort of yeah the 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 the, the way the film plays with the imaginative spaces of of different objects because we've got one one fantastical object that shouldn't be moving 
bringing to life other objects that shouldn't be visualised, um, all woven together within this sort of collective um, narrative of, you know, there's a ship in the bottle, but also we'll pause and have a sing-song with the frog uh, and all this kind of stuff. So this kind of messy, chaotic joy in 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 yeah different objects and i'm very interested in bagpuss as a character i think we could i think you know like freud did with hamlet i'm going to attempt to sort of unpack the the role of bagpuss as both an object of fantasy and an enabler of fantasy in, in that he is both the sort of locus of our fantastical imagination and he brings to life the fantastical creature whilst basically being a bit sleepy so uh, yeah loads of interesting things about objectness in the in, in the show and um, fear and anxiety and threat are kind of key for Freud in terms of the, the deep kind of seats of psychology. And, and that's what we kind of glaze over at the very end of the episode. There's this, there's this sense of threat. It's never really explored in any of the episodes, but there is this concern that, oh, Bagbus is going to sleep now. We yeah. need to kind of get back in position. Um, you know, Madeline voices it a couple of times, and there's this, just this suggestion of something bad could happen, um, which is something that... Um, Peter Furman certainly explores in Pinney's house. If you would know, for listeners want to explore another episode, another show, um, there is a fragment of that still on YouTube that you can find. You can't find the whole series, um, but he kind of goes more heavily into um, that sense of, of you know, something bad could have happened if these if these toys weren't kind of allowed to you know rest in the right place. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. There's um, the Bagpus is absolutely the, the kind of the agency, the, the, the point of agency with, within this, and, and lots of things channel through him. Uh, and Alex, you're spot on. You know that the the, um, the mermaid sequence is not animated; it's uh, still paintings, still watercolor paintings that have been done by an artist called Linda per Linda Birch. Um, she did eleven of those, and you kind of zooming in, pan and scan, moving around to kind of give the sense of kinetic energy. Uh, but you know the. the the animation is restricted to the cutout cardboard animation that Peter Vermin created, which is the mouse moving uh, and the stop motion. Armature. I'm glad. So I'm glad you mentioned sort of. I'm glad you took my Freudian thread and went with it, Chris. There because I think I've written down melancholy, and there's there's absolutely. I mean, there's there's lots of theorists sort of like from you know Kristeva is the sort of uber text on melancholy about sort of the fantasy fantasy storytelling is in in many ways a melancholic act in that it's you know what is it but stories about things we really want to exist but but we know don't exist um, and that sense of mournfulness for a world that could be but we know never will be um, yeah that ending is really peculiar but but in a beautiful way because there's this real emphasis on you know I guess on death on this on stillness as death and that I guess links to sort of Mulvey's stuff on sort of stillness and and um, you know the, the the death that lies behind any frame um, whether it be live action or animation yeah the, the frame by frame animation is in many way um, an attempt to get over the stillness of of what's actually there which is that which is the inanimate image um but yeah absolutely like, there's this what's the net what does the voiceover says it says something like and then um th you know bagpuss becomes a cloth cat and and the and the mice will become but objects and the uh, and, and there's this real emphasis that okay that was fun but let's get back to reality now and reality isn't it was the past. Yeah, it was the past as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, Bagpuss was made in in the mid seventies. Uh, yet we're shown a world. You know, we're, we it never really dates it accurately. But the implication of the sepia images and the dress of Emily and the types of toys. You know, that we're looking at a world that was probably 70, 80 years earlier. So you know, what's the implication there as well that we're, we're possibly looking into a, a world of a very old individual or maybe has even passed away. So there's 
they're not really fully explored, but you can get a sense of it as an adult viewer. You know, there's kind of that, that dual address going on. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a world for the child viewer to watch. And then there's also, if you're there with the child watching it, more for you to kind of get your teeth stuck into too, which is the mm. Pixar move. That's why we're all sitting there crying. <laughs> it's, I, it's just struck me as well, I was kind of thinking about the dates of this that the Bagbrus is three years before Star Wars, <laughs> <laughs> just as a, just as a strange moment there. Um, I yeah, I I like what the the program in this, especially in this first episode, does. And actually, this is something that I tr- is traceable across all of the the episodes that I watched. This sort of kind of value and hierarchies of cultural value and the way that the program and and does so through the characters and also does so through Emily. Um, is sort of reclaiming the trivial so setting up a series of substantial relationships and meaningfulness to these sorts of trivial trivial kind of objects i actually had a i had a question when i was watching because i i didn't actually know too much about the intricacies of the narrative and my i wrote down a question at the very start of the episode is the cat found or is the cat real and i was trying to figure out if the cat was real bankpuss was real and just animated but was a real cat and it was her pet and and he bagpuss liked to sleep in the window and that was like a thing and then it took me a while to oh i see it's a it's a toy that also comes to life and i and actually i was trying to think about why that distinction was was important and then i thought well it's actually about the child's and i was thinking about her her, the idea of narration and the fact that it privileges her activities and and really she is the catalyst for everything that happens in the episode because she brings this object or this old piece of rag or the ship in a ship that's that's in a bottle but in pieces or uh, wooden boxes that are able to create chocolate biscuits from butter beans and and you know breadcrumbs so she brings all this stuff into the and i was thinking about her role as sort of narrator and 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 what that means for the idea of imagination and and that, yeah that that level of narration or that level of imaginative um processes where we are watching an animated character come to life who has an agency and who has an agency that his memories and imagination can fix in lots of ways objects in the real world and there are lots of lines in this first episode what we need is a magic story um and something I can relate to, I need my thinking cap, which is something I we all need at the moment. Uh, and his thoughts appeared like magic. So there's a lot going on in this first episode. And, there, and all, over the course of 12 minutes or so, has to really and specifically identify the things that can and can't happen and the levels of imagination that those activities relate to. So, yeah. Good choice for episode one and episode one. <laughs> so I guess let's let's keep this conversation going on into the into the next episodes. Are we going to keep going uh, chronologically, or wh- where are we going next, Chris? No, no, we're going to jump ahead. Okay. So uh, the next episode, number four on the ranking, is flying. Okay. Which I think is episode right. twelve. I think it's the back end, yep. the penultimate episode. Um, so this is another one that that kind of. I like this, that you might be able to figure out the reason why I've picked this one. If I say Yaffle is kind of, he takes us on a journey from episode mm-hmm. one to episode 12. There's a kind of an interesting character development that we see. Um, but also this is a story about a, a basket that's found and they try to work out what this basket is. And eventually we discover um, that it's, it's a flying basket. Um, so the episode's all about um, you know, how the, the, the characters might be able to get this basket to fly again. And we go off on a couple of different flights of fancy, excuse the pun, um, through different types of animated media to look at different ways that the characters might um, conceive of flying and um, again it's the kind of whimsicalness um, 
I, I use whimsy a lot in the book. I talk about whimsy. And, and one of the, I think it comes back to something that Alex was saying, because um, for me, whimsy feels like it has the balance between light and dark in, 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 within whimsy as well. There's the sense that you can go to a dark place, but then come back to something that's more upbeat. Um, it also feels a kind of quixotic that you never may be able to predict what's going to come next. There's kind of twists and turns within whimsy. Um, and this, this episode feels like it's absolutely packed full of whimsical moments where you feel like you're heading in a direction and then suddenly, you know, uh, the church mouse is telling you the accurate distance to the sun. You know, it's 93 million miles away to the sun. That's why you can't get to it, which, you know, you don't anticipate uh, to, to appear. Uh, and I also mm. love the kind of Heath Robin, Robinson-esque uh, book that they have, uh, Percy Pratt's um, Aeronautics, which... It, Heath Robinson is the, is the is the popular um, point of reference to go to, but I would also say it's it's Postgatian. You know, Oliver Postgate's got this real track record of these crazy inventions. You know, read his autobiography. He makes a homemade washing machine for his mom that just sounds lethal, um, and he's he kind of he invents uh, kind of renewable energies and all sorts of stuff that he's kind of you know, new types of spectacles. He's always thinking about inventions. So, I think whenever you see characters like that, whether it's um, in Nogging the Nog, or whether it's in um, well, Sam and Buff's Island, you've got these kind of inventor figures. I feel like Postgate's trying to put a bit of himself uh, on screen as well. So that's my choice for number four. Well, so on that issue of in- invention, and and you know perhaps this ties back into the the sort of tabletop aesthetic and the the um, I don't know the, the labour that occurs within a I mean not a domestic space but something that happens quite close to home to to use your phrase from from earlier on and I was thinking about then the role of of Professor Yaffle which seems to be um, based according to to the internet on on Bertrand Russell which may or may not be true he's you're smiling at me in a way that like yes people always say that or of course this is obvious but anyway um you're the one that's doing the project first first answer I write I've written about that as well it is that's like the standard anecdote is everywhere. Yeah. Can't escape. Yeah, yeah. But why is that? Well, that's I, an interesting thing that's that's kind of gained traction. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that I I hit hit the inadvertent nail on the head. But my my question was then going to be about his role within this episode, which is about belief. Uh, and this happens actually. There's a the episode. So episode eight, the, the the mouse mill that does something similar with his his incredulity that actually it's all a trick. He talks about a trick and it being a rotten trick. It's a deception and illusion. And his role in this episode is to challenge the idea that a basket or, you know, talk about basket and cabbage leaves uh, can fly to then fly off to scrape gold off of the sun with a spoon. And then he says, if you want to know about a particular subject, you must study it in detail, one for the students. Um, But there's also something around his role in relation to belief and whether or not this is something I, I haven't seen enough of them to know what his narrative role is in this world of toys that come to life. And he, he, he comes into being as this woodpecker, but then goes back and becomes a bookend. Um, so has a different kind of functional value, but then it's proved to be a falsehood because he sees this, this basket flying away and he can't believe that this is happening because that's not what his brain has told him that flight should encompass. And then it's revealed to be an illusion. And so I was just wondering about what your thoughts were, Chris, on his role in, in the series, I guess, across these 13 episodes. Um, and is he, is he your favorite character? I feel sorry for him. Um, that's, that's, that's for sure. He's the intellectual uh, of the group, right? In a, in, yeah, in a bad way and, and a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I empathise with, with Yaffle. Um, particularly having young kids who, who probably see me in that regard as well. Um, no, I think that 
you, you dig into Postgate, you dig into Postgate's views on um, on what we're doing right now. You know, he would be turning in his grave the fact that we're, that we're doing this, that we're kind of subjecting his work to kind of intellectual study and we're reading things into it. You know, his view is always very much, you know, it is what it is. You know, I was telling stories and I was just kind of using the de devices to hand. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Peter Furman many times before he passed away and he would he was so resistant to kind of wanting to entertain the idea of there being a subtext or a meaning or anything like that you know it's always a kind of surface level very literal um but i i don't fully buy into that because uh, you know oliver postgate was it was a smart guy uh, and he was aware of the world going on around him and i think you know with, with the yaffle character they wanted somebody that, that could be this kind of figure of um kind of the intellectual um which he values and, he, and, and I, when he's talking about you know you need to consult a book and you kind of need to do your homework and your research that's something that Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman would absolutely you know advocate for but but they're both also very practical and kind of applied thinkers and, and kind of want to do things and put things into practice they you know they you know proponents of craft and um, and I think that's what he's trying to kind of introduce that balance you know don't become too focused and narrow in your vision of you know how to you know kind of think or, or think about things or achieve things try and do and fail and, and and that's what kind of the mice do and yes it's deception and it's a kind of a funny little moment um but i think that's what he's trying to get at with that and it's and it's significant surely that he's made of wood that that this character that's the only character that can't be molded and bent and and squashed or 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 made more malleable um is this yeah chiseled yeah um you know yeah varnished uh inert thing and and his position is inert and and you know what it does is is it's a classic fantasy rhetoric that i yeah, get a character on screen voicing all the potential rational concerns you might have about it and paint him as a bit of a wally and the, the audience goes with the other side because because emotionally it feels better to go with the, with the characters that seem to be having fun than the character that seems to be sitting there crossing his well wings um kind of moaning at everything um so absolutely you know it, it's they know what they're doing it's 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 a way of of getting the audience on side of the irrational as opposed to the the, the scientific or the empiric um yeah so i just thought you know there's got that you know there's not it's not an accident that that character is made of wood at the same time but I was I was thinking about his role as then as a bookend and how that's you know he's linked to to reading and, and broadening the mind and all this sort of stuff and so I like his role in relation to belief but actually your point about the, his materiality relates to a note I made about the first episode actually about the role of character movement and how actually the the, the character move the movement has to do the job of the voice in lots of cases as part of the performance because it's not that this is not sophisticated animation. It, it absolutely is. I just mean a lot of the characters, um, their mouths don't speak in the way, or the movement of the mouth isn't necessarily anchored to, to, to what they're saying. And, and that makes sense, given that, that a lot of them are toys. We have toys and dolls and, and, and so forth. And, and so actually, I think what stop motion does perhaps as a medium, and this brings to the fore quite substantially, is that, yeah, that the character movement has to do a lot, a lot, and I know that you, you know, Chris, you've written on, on performance capture and things like this, but, but character movement has to do the job of other performance elements, actually more so in something like Bagpuss because, because of, of, I think, the role of, of what the voice plays in performance in something like this, which, which isn't, you know, this is him doing all of the, well, the majority of the voices, I believe. Um, but there was just something around, I was watching it being really struck by, how the characters are moving and that cast that ends up communicating a lot of the performance of the of the character so it's not just adhering to their materiality as wood or as felt or as 
whatever it is that they're actually built of. But actually, at the level of character, the movement is having to substitute in a lot of expressive movement in their face, which they don't have, or the voice, which their mouths don't often move. Or So, I, yeah, I, I was just struck on the importance that, that Bagpuss has to character movement, which is sort of what the, the program's about, about the the threat of what happens when you can't move after 10 minutes because old Bagpuss is, is falling asleep again. So I really liked the, the emphasis on movement and, and really enjoyed, which is obviously stop motion. There's lots of stuff around the, the, the jerkiness of stop motion and the, the, the labour and the manifestation of labour. And it's sort of a three-dimensional articulation of the idea of boiling on in cell animation. So there's lots and lots of stuff around stop motion in relationship to movement and within the context of child's play, playing with objects, the way that we make characters move. But I thought this was a really striking example of the absolute fundamental importance of movement to the articulation of character as a substitute for other performance elements. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess when Yaffle looks up when the basket begins to fly and he's kind of saying, yeah. he kind of runs out of words because he's, he's, in, he's in disbelief and he's held, the pose is held with his beak open um, for about four or five seconds he's kind of in that pose and you know on the one hand that would be a kind of post-grade thinking about what's the most economical way to do the animation. Um, you know, he talks a lot about um only really using extremes you know you know that's all you need you know the, you need the extreme body position to convey the meaning you don't need the stuff in between as, as much um so he's kind of found the right pose for yaffle that that kind of physical pose that he's in conveys everything you know the words have left him he's, he's, his jaws dropped he's looking up in disbelief and the kind of materiality of him helps to reinforce that point and he said i just I kind of you know to put on the, the record though that this is um Peter Furman again, um, you know, the craftsmanship of, of Yaffle, you know, is down to, you know, Peter Furman of being able to put his hand to a range of different materials and to deliver the goods. Mm. I, I feel like I know not a lot about the character because he's the first one, if I remember, in every episode to go and inspect what's being brought in. And they spent the episode spend a lot of time actually showing his journey from the shelf to the floor. And I feel like that's a really conscious decision. Of course, he's the professor. Okay, he's based on Bertram Russell. He goes and has a look because, of course, he's fundamentally inquisitive. But the walk that he does, and I'm saying he, but the walk that the bird does with the male voice as it walks down towards the floor tells me an awful lot really economically in terms of pose and movement and the sort of juddering of, about what that character is and why he's the first character to go down. And Because, of course, he would be because he's the professor. But anyway, yeah. I just yeah, I love him as a character. So I guess we should go to number three then. Sure. The the third of your your five episodes. Yeah, number three, we have got the Frog Princess, okay. which is uh, okay. mid series, I think, from memory. My favourite's hanging um, on in there so far. I won't declare what it is. Yeah, it's well, hanging on in uh, there. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably all predict what number one's going to be. Um, so yeah, this one is uh, kind of the, these these jewels, these these unknown jewels um, arrive in the shop, and they've got to figure out what they are. Uh, and then the jewels are kind of put into various different configurations, playfully throughout the episode, um, until they realise that these were the jewels that belonged to a frog princess. And along the way, we kind of hear the story of this this frog princess, um, kind of her many suitors. Uh, and then finally, we get some kind of nice reversals in terms of fairy tale expectation and kind of almost kind of rejections of of fairy tale expectations uh, throughout the episode as well. So I really like it for a number of reasons. I mean, we're into the point now of kind of ranking three, two and one, where I'm, I'm actually giving you kind of qualitative reasons why I think these are, you know, up there. Um, 
you know, visually, it's very experimental at times. The episode, you know, it kind of makes connections with some experimental animation, kind of abstract animation. Um, Norm McLaren, you know, kind of springs to mind. Um, the fact that, again, we've got some really beautiful watercolor in there as well. Uh, and, I, and I just love the narrative. I think the narrative of it is is strong and there's a real kind of conviction um, in terms of um, gender equality, which is kind of seeping through as well, which would have been a contemporary topic. And, and Postgate and Fermi would reject me and say, no, no, it's just... It's just a fairy tale. You're reading too much, but there's something there that's kind of percolating through the fabric. And, and there's something about I, I. This is me forgetting characters' names, but the the ragdoll character Madeline. Madeline is very is almost always the storyteller. So when there's that segment of the of the of sharing this folk story, um, she is given the, the voiceover. Uh, she is given the, the story to tell. The Bagbus kind of visualizes the story right so um or at least that's the sort of mythology of it um and of course that links to lots of stuff on you know that folk folk storytelling is traditionally a sort of you know female feminine oriented household um task you know it would be it would be see it would be you know uh, you know in a, in a patriarchal society it was the women that shared the folk stories because men were were, were actually being yaffle climbing down from his shelf sharing official stories that were were wooden and written and and the written word whilst these sort of you know more um feminine spaces where these stories would be told over households over over work um and all this kind of stuff Mar marina warner writes much better than this than i'm articulating here so it's interesting that the storyteller um, and the person that commands the crowd um, is this ragdoll character. Um, and again, that's a nice little juxtaposition of, of object with function and all this kind of stuff. You're, you're, you're halfway there, Alex. I want to just kind of add a little bit to that. Um, the, the person that voices Madeline is Sandra Kerr, so famous folk singer. And the person that voices Gabriel the Toad is John Faulkner. And they're kind of this, this famous folk double act, um, very prolific. And um, you know, they do the theme tune to Bagpuss and they, you know, they wrote lots of the songs. Um, and they worked with Postgate and Fermi on a, on a few other occasions. And I would, I, I completely agree, agree with you that um, Madeline does quite often provide that kind of impetus for the storytelling within the episode. But I, I see it as over the course of all 13 episodes, um, there's a bit more of a kind of a, a duality, a tension almost between Gabriel and Madeline. They almost kind of compete with each other to be the, the kind of prima storyteller. But that is because they're coming from the voices of the folk sure. singers who are then going to provide the song and the story and the background. And so and what that does with with that duel, you're right with the duel, and actually it's often it's often the sort of sings the song that kind of links vaguely to the story and all this kind of stuff. And the the show is very quick to emphasise that, that as much as they are the storytellers, they are not the the birthers of the story. This isn't madly right. Everyone gather around and I'll create a story for you. It's sharing some unspoken heritage or culture that that's happening beyond the story itself. You know, I, I'll tell you a story that I was once told, and and it's and it's that communal aspect of the story that it is quick to emphasise. So yes, it's not it's not all on the singular. There's a duality to it as well. I have my notes for this episode are it's it's I have both a comment and a question in true academic <laughs> conference style. My 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 comment is I actually thought this was in, in this this uh, episode which is about storytelling about, and about the power of storytelling it made me think and there's a line of, oh it's just it's just a watery fairy tale it's just uh, and it made me think that this program is actually in lots and lots of ways about the consequential nature of storytelling the things that you can imagine can fix the world um, and the stories can be explanatory they explain or they give a version of, a, of an, an event about this is how this object was used this is the history this is the context and so actually more than just the, the idea of storytelling, I've got 
um, yeah, this sort of just a water, watery fairy tale, the story of the princess's crown, which I thought was cell animated, but I think from what you said, it's more watercolour. At the very least, drawings on paper, because the background seems to stay the same while the characters move, but it's not a fluid motion. It's Perhaps it taps into what you were saying earlier about the, the held poses or the, the kind of keyframes in lots, in lots of ways, I suppose. Um, but a song about this, this song about a sad princess who lived in the depths of a cool mountain pool... Um, that is then dismissed as just a watery fairy tale. It got me thinking about the power, the power that this program sort of emphasises with regards to storytelling. And there are so many. Le- we have the yeah, the, the narration, the photographs. We go into the sh- the shop. The, the tone changes. We get Bagpuss's version of events, his imagination, the song that tells the story, and all these different layers of storytelling. I thought were fantastic, and and the different consequences that that each of those acts of imagination can can have. That's my comment. My question is, uh, maybe this is, I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but it's, it, to me it stood out because it's the frog princess. And I was like, oh, I know this story. I mean, I obviously don't because of the way it's been manipulated and, and played with. But I was just wondering, is this a common across the series? Do they often lean on, on uh, culturally resonant stories? Um, or do they, because a lot of the stuff is original, but I just, I just yeah. Is, again, is the frog princess exceptional? Um, to an extent, they do lean on on established stories, and, and and they kind of go broader as well. You know, there's some kind of um, kind of Chinese folk tales as well. They bring in and um, Irish mythology, and and they kind of they, they draw on it. But this is the one that really properly goes into kind of an established fairy tale realm where we think where we think we know it, and I think that's the reason why they do that. So then they can flip it. Um, in terms of the the watercolor that you're talking about, that that Charlotte Furman um, did the watercolors. There's eleven of those again, and they kind of they pan and scan and, and move around. Um, I've not really looked across the series to think about which is the one that takes you deepest into the yeah. area layers, but this one feels like it's probably the one that does it because you've got Emma, you've got Emily, we well, got the photograph, you've got Emily, you've got Bagpost, you've got Madeline, then you've got Gabriel, and then <laughs> you start to kind of come back out. So it goes very deep. I think it's just, yeah. I think in, in what Alex was talking about as well, I, I picked this one specifically because of the community aspect. You know, it, it's a story yeah. that has to be told together. It's not a story that any one of them individually can tell. Yeah. I have a little, um, yeah, little Charlotte Furman story. When I was at school, at primary school, uh, she came into the school um, with a big um, piece of paper and, and, a, and a pen, and she encouraged us to come up with a story on the spot, and she illustrated the story live. Um, for us which was fantastic and somewhere that drawing will exist in our old primary school but um yeah so so and the and the Furman name is and the postgate names are certainly um uh they are our local celebs i would say <laughs> i would say but they also they haven't read the snow white book yet so let's not call judgment on that too much um i yeah i, I suppose the, the only other note i had about this episode was you said at the start of the description that the bits of um, the kind of fragments, the bits of metal that are described as painted or enameled are placed in different configurations. And you have that really amazing little standout sequence right at the start that kind of looks like the inverse of silhouette animation, all these flat pieces of metal that are arranged to form a bird and a cat. And I really liked that flattened style, and, and that seemed indicative of a programme that does an awful lot in terms... It's not just a stop-motion series. There's a lot going on in terms of different um, forms of graphic illustration, as you said, Charlotte Furman's, Furman's work, but also just in a, a sort of experimental element. And you mentioned experimental animation before. The sorts of... They seem to be doing a lot more than just object animation, but really playing with different forms of expression, which I which I loved. 
Well, that, that example, I mean, those those enameled pieces were created by Joan Furman. Um, now, the brief for that, from what I can gather, was was pretty slim, you know, essentially make me some enamel pieces and, and she's created those kind of magnificent uh, objects. Then if you dig into the archive, you look at the storyboard, this is that the famous McLaren. I mean, it, for me, it looks a bit like Lemel, the kind of McLaren-esque, um, the way it kind of metamorphosizes into different shapes or the uh, kind of cat chasing the bird. Um, you know, what happens between the frame is more important than what happens on the frame. Now, that kind of old McLaren statement, because this particular sequence, if you look at the script, it just says animated bird sequence. All it says. It's like Busby Berkeley musicals back in the day. You look at the yeah. script for those, it just says see buzz. No, that's all it says. And then there's going to be a three-minute choreographed sequence that he'll introduce. So this is a sequence where you've got you know production back and forth between Sandra Kerr and John Faulkner there producing the music. Postgate's then responding to the music and he's animating in quite a straight ahead, quite experimental way, responding to the beats. So it's quite out of step with the rest of the series in that mm -hmm. regard. So it's again, it's another one of those moments where Bagbus just kind of says, you know what, let's do something different and yeah. you know, experiment. Yeah. Just a different way of thinking about the same of I, I, I was wary actually in lots of ways about doing an episode like about doing a program like this just simply because i was thinking oh we'll end up talking about the handmade and the, and craft again is is sort of the default sort of the ardman game that you play when you try and talk about ardman without talking about things like handmade yeah, and, yeah the fingerprints because there are fingerprints in the clay like that's a thing and actually a sequence like that mm. one that you explain and I, I love the idea that the script was just super brief um Actually, yeah, it, it's it's a moment where yeah they're doing something different. It's a different spin on the idea of the the artisan or the idea of craft. Um, wo working together, you get scenes of communal activities. They build stuff or they put stuff together or they they put the ship back in. The, all these kinds of things. But but that particular sequence, I thought, yeah, this is mm. this is great. You know, the first three minutes of an episode is always the same, and then I got this, and I was not expecting against a really stark black background as it plays with form and plays with animated movement again. So um. Yeah, I think this this program does does an awful lot more than I thought in relation to ideas of these long standing ideas of, of craft, presumably that are always going to be part of the the small films industrial narrative. And I guess just to add to that, I mean, I can't believe you guys get to have a conversation about fairy tales, and then I'm going to come in with something about mixed media. But um, the only thing I would say is to add to all that is that you know, is there's it's an interesting again this form and function coming together in that what it articulates when you've got these sort of sequences like this is it the shape dance, and then you've which are in a one form of animation folded in with this other form of object animation that has a much more liminal quality with the real in that it's it's both you know proto-filmic and not in in many ways um that what it's doing is also highlighting the different imaginative uses of craft in that there's a huge difference between um you know um one's relationship to a to a to a picture versus one's relationship to a toy um and, and what you use in that respect so that the film the, the, the show folds that in very nicely we should though move on to our our runner-up um uh prize our, our <laughs> silver, silver medal yeah absolutely um so so chris yeah. why don't you um take that that's one? appropriate if it's a silver medal because we're going to go with the owl of athens um it's a it's a lovely story um, again, it's one where we get the object, which is this dirty rag. What is this dirty rag? And it's revealed that actually um, it's some embroidered fabric, which has got this owl on. Uh, then we're going to go through two very different animated sub 
sub-animated sequences where we first of all go into um, kind of the, the story about the owls. Uh, then we go into the, the song about the Boney King of Nowhere, which is my favourite mm -hmm. song in all of Bagpost. Mm -hmm. uh, and that then kind of brings us back to the realisation it's actually a cushion um, and it's been beautifully finished. Uh, but all the way through that, we've got um, Joan Furman's embroidery work, which is, you know, she's, she's made the cushion. Um, but if you look at the animation for the owl sequence, that's not pan and scanning over the cushion that we see at the end. That's multiple i've not done the counting on this one but there's multiple other sheets of embroidered material that joan has produced yeah. to generate that that sequence so again it's another one where you look in postgate's autobiography and there's a sentence um one and a half lines you know joan, joan Furman did the embroidery that's basically what he says so I, you know this isn't a character assassination this this research project but it's just a chance to kind of revisit some of these moments and ask, ask the question can we expand this a little bit more and give a little bit more detail to joan Furman and, and mm. establish her contribution um and then in terms of the bony king of nowhere that's an example where where sandra kerr and john fortner you know did some revisions on the song to introduce it a bit more life you know the the postgate quite often uh, wrote the songs in the original scripts. Uh, some of them stuck, whereas some of them went over to, to Kerr and Faulkner. They revised, completely removed and changed, and then they came back, and then they become the songs that we see in the series. So Bony King of Nowhere, with its playfulness, with its kind of implied rhymes, um, was something that they drove as well. Mm. I, I'm really interested in this idea of, you said about it not being a character assassination, um, of course, but actually this thing about female labour and reclaiming the work of women within these sorts of great man narratives. And you mentioned right at the start, as part of that default industrial narrative, the, the sort of great work of these of these of uh, these animators and filmmakers um is that becoming an increasingly important element through episodes like this the owls of athens where you have these really intricate i was staggered that the, the frames were essentially these these embroidered pieces of of, of work that were and, and there are issues obviously around sound and the importance of voiceover and the the sort of atmospheric sounds i felt in this episode more than the others perhaps but i was just wondered is 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 sort of reclaiming the work of, of women as part of this project, something that's sort of emerged out of the contrib the multiple contributions of, of illustrators and embroidered and people like that. Is that something that's kind of come out of your research? Yeah. I mean, that, the, you know, all the things that I've said today have been informed by the underpinning research, ref Claxon again. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the, the point is from day, from day one, I, I had to sit down, I had this lovely chat summer's day in the back garden, Peter Furman, John Furman, Dan Postgate, Charlotte Furman, Emily Furman. We were getting some of the models out. We had cream tea. And just that first moment three years ago, three and a half years ago, there was so much more to say. There was so many more contributions by women to the production of small films. Um, you know, I talk in the book about John Furman in terms of and the kind of domestic labour of, of enabling the production to take place, even though there were six young children running around on this very small space. You know, how do you then do stop motion animation with six small children not messing with continuity? Um, you know, she's responsible for knitting the clangers. You know, she you know, helps to, to, to produce some of the stuff on Sam on Boff's Island. Um, so, uh, but she's incredibly self-effacing. You know, I've spoken to her a few times. <sighs> you know, I just did that. I just did that. You know, that's about as much as you get. So it's really working hard to kind of get her the recognition and um in terms of bagpost there's this sense you know you, you mentioned cottage industry before and i think that's an appropriate term but i also find it unsatisfactory because it almost feels like it underplays what's going on at um kind of the firm in space which is kind of the hotbed of where it all takes place you know joan's going out in the evening she's doing evening classes she's learning embroidery enameling she's going into local school she's teaching enameling so she's doing a lot more and i get the sense that there probably were these conversations where 
Um, you know, maybe Oliver or Peter had said, um, you know, we need we need something different for this sequence. Joan, kind of, what could you, could you do or something? And then she's probably said, I could do some enamels or you know, I could embroider you something. And that's the way it would have been perceived at that kind of first point of creative decision making. But actually, the labour that's gone into them, you know, a week later to kind of say, well, here's eleven embroidered owl sequences for you, is just lost. That's kind of compressed. And that's what I'm trying to unravel. Yeah, and it's a, it's a it's a great sequence, um, pun intended, to unravel. So um, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, just with with our conscience of time, why don't we we move on to our our final episode, which I'm delighted for you got completely right, uh, Chris. That is the right answer. This is the best episode. But why don't you explain? And it's why. appropriate that you know, it's appropriate that we only spend one minute talking about the mouse mill because, to be <laughs> honest, it's on every single TV compilation you ever see. It's it's the example everyone ever talks about. Quite rightly so. Um, because it's it's brilliant, it's charming, it's funny, it's inventive. It's got all of the stuff on screen in terms of, you know, the the the, the workmanship of uh, Peter Fermin, the craft to, to make that miniature mill that, that works in the way it does. You know, I sat down. I was telling Chris, um, I made Charlie and Evie sit down and watch Bagpuss episodes with me this week as my prep for this, and that was the one. You know, Charlie loved that episode, and there's a reason for it. You know, it, it has all the elements that you need in terms of fantasy and, and surprise and you know, craft. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my notes on it are that it's an example of a very well-pitched and plotted episode. Um, nice little twist at the end, of course. I do like a twist. Uh, I was actually, yeah, doing a bit of, of, of uh, research around b- both this episode and the response following Postgate's death, um, and particularly Charlie Brooker doing that, that sort of... Um, uh, piece on Screenwipe about his work and one of the things that he talked about was sound and he said that you have these sedate sounds in a lot of these episodes but crucially these are sounds that can then be repeated by children after the program they, they're they very easy to to do the sound of trains or the sound of the clangers and, and the sort of um, the the gestures that the professor makes when he's like like that um, and I really thought that was striking the soundtrack tone character all of these things are, are, are pitch perfect um, then in this episode you have stories i think that this time that the story that's told is a drawn illustrations if i remember rightly um but it's just an example of a, an episode that in 12 minutes or so um manages to set up the the well sets up the intricacy of this this um mill pose a narrative problem around the ability of this mill out of um cardboard mill at that out of uh, chocolate biscuits making chocolate biscuits out of breadcrumbs and butter beans and then destabilizing it as part of a trick and and so forth uh, and so that level of knowledge the f- i just think it's it's such a, a cleverly cleverly put together episode um and allows you for the first time to sort of go ra- and i think that's why it links quite nicely with flying is that it, it goes it takes us behind the curtain to borrow well, the second or to do the second Wizard of Oz episode, uh, reference of the episode. I think the um, there's a difference there because I think in the flying episode, the mice engage in a deception, whereas yeah. I, I feel like in this one, they have kind of, um, they've swallowed the fantasy. Yeah. They've, they've kind of bought into it too deeply and they believe that they are actually creating chocolate biscuits from the butter beans and breadcrumbs. Well, and, and it's it's a little bit gentler at the end, and I think that's that's kind of sweet to see. Yeah, it's a different understanding of how objects work, isn't it? And then their jokes, obviously, on the professor, uh, which is probably 
an appropriate uh, appropriate place to uh, to end the discussion. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, thanks so much for for helping us. Well, for for unpacking Bagpus for us, and we're really excited to read your book. Um, listeners who are yeah. listening in the future, go and access it through all available independent bookshops and other bookshops that uh, stock it. Um, is there any final thoughts you want to share, Chris, just as a, as a wrap-up um, for our Anifest listeners? Thank you so much for listening throughout the day. If you've um, enjoyed our, our various episodes and things, and they'll be on, I believe, the archive, they'll be on the database for a, another while yet, so there's still time to unpack some of the stuff we've, we've provided. Um, yeah, so is there any final thoughts we need to cover about Bagpus, Chris? Um, no final thoughts about Bagpuss. You can buy the book and find out more in that. Um, in terms of Anifest, I mean, if you've made it this far and, and you're, you're a frequent um, attender at Anifest, then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a shame we can't meet together in person this year, but we'll be back again next year. You know, thank you for your support, your ongoing support. You know, we really value you as an, a festival audience. Um, so, yeah, I hope you've really enjoyed this and there's going to be more um, throughout the rest of this fantasy animation Canterbury Anifest mm. mashup. It's very exciting, and, and thank you for listening. And thank, we'll see you for the Q and A. Uh, so please do um, take part in that if you're listening to this um, before that started. Um, Chris, that's been us for another week. Uh, you can find yes. us, of course, at fantasy-animation.org. As, access all minor of blogs and podcasts there, as well as on social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at fananim research. F A N A N I M research. Um, I'm going to go back to sleep now um, and uh, and turn into a black and white photograph. Uh, and I'll see you there. <laughs> what a ha- what a harrowing thought, Alex. What a harrowing- oh, but because because surely the outcome of that is that that me and, and Chris become inanimate. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping. Uh, <laughs> Chris, you have to say bye now to end the episode. Bye bye. Bye. The bony king of nowhere. He sat upon his throne. He didn't much like sitting there because his throne was. His throne was made of stone. His throne was made of marble white, its feet were made.